Hey everybody, it's been a 007 back for another edition of Vassals of Kingsgraves Agatha Christie reread. And this is the 10th episode. It will be another mini pod in which I discuss one of the novels that we aren't doing as a big group. Today's episode is covering the Seven Dials mystery that was initially published in 1929 when Agatha Christie was 39. Unfortunately, this novel, as with many of Agatha Christie's mysteries and thrillers, is not given a very good rap by the critics. But I think you have to read it in the right way. I would say that, wouldn't I? As does Val McDermott. Quote, the Seven Dials mystery isn't a thriller. It's a pastiche of a thriller, an antidote to the gung-ho chest beating of the boys. And what Val McDermott's referring to are the John Buchan-style novels that were very popular in the 1920s at a time of heightened geopolitical tension, when typically Germans, Russians, or the Chinese, Germans, Russians, the Chinese, or the Japanese, or some combination of the, the four were all the bad guys, and there were international conspiracies everywhere, typically investigated by a stalwart English gentleman who turned out to be an amazing man of action in a sort of proto-James Bond style. This absolutely is not what Agatha Christie is doing. Her heroine um, is Bundle Brent, an aristocratic young woman who is very smart, very adventurous, very courageous, but is very determinedly an amateur. And this is exactly the, if there is a big theme to the book, it's that amateurs have a place and that the courageous amateur can do good work while having good fun at the same time. So it has a very light tone. It's not at all earnest and self-important. And in fact, in the relations between Bundle and her father, Lord Caterham, who Agatha Christie sent up beautifully in her previous novel, The Secret at Chimneys, um, we are in the territory, I feel, more of P.G. Woodhouse and Bertie Worcester and Jeeves. A note also for the listener who doesn't know why this is called The Seven Dials Mystery, and one of the settings of the novel is in the Seven Dials area of London, which is just to the north of Covent Garden. And today is a very well-kept, quite touristy area full of little restaurants and shops. Um, it was initially developed, actually, in the 17th century. And for architecture fans, is one of the only parts of London built in the Stuart era that is still effectively standing. So it's really lovely to walk around today called the Seven Dials because there's a roundabout with seven streets coming out from around it. Um, built by Thomas Neal, who really thought it was going to be a very upmarket area for people to live and shop, but very quickly became a slum. One of the most notorious slums of London. And um, not that this sounds particularly exciting or unusual, but at the time it was known for having a pub on each one of the seven intersections coming off of the, the roundabout. So to people reading this in 1929, Seven Dials would still have had a pretty dodgy reputation and certainly at odds with having Bundle Brent be the aristocratic heroine. This is what Charles Dickens said of Seven Dials in 1835. Streets and courts dart in all directions until they are lost in the unwholesome vapour which hangs over the housetops and renders the dirty perspective uncertain and confined. Um, there you go. As I said, today it's really beautiful and worth having a wander around. So let's look at the plot of this novel. And as always on the mini pods, I will not spoil the plot um, so you can read the book and still have full enjoyment. But if you hang on till after the end music, I will discuss the conclusion of it a little bit. So the novel opens 
um, in Chimneys, the country house that we visited in a previous novel. And it's full of what I might call Evelyn Waugh's bright young things. So young aristocratic boys who are slightly dim, um, very lazy, don't come down for breakfast till about 11 o'clock in the morning and are variously sent up, but also send themselves up. And there's lots of people at various times in this novel who say things like, well, Jerry Wade can't possibly be such an ass as he makes out. And that really is the theme of the story, which is people who aren't quite what they seem. Um, They're staying at the country house as the guests of Sir Oliver and Lady Coote, who are new money. They are industrialists and the gentleman has made his money in steel, which is going to become very important because the MacGuffin of the story is a patent for a special process to do with refining steel that will hugely help the military progress of whoever is the lucky owner of the patent. Um, We later on discover that that patent is going to be tested by the industrialist and its results discussed at another country house uh, party held at Wyvern Abbey. However, we must have some murders. This is Agatha Christie. And what happens is, is that poor old Jerry Wade, who's very tardy down to breakfast, the other bright young things decide to play a prank on him and they get some alarm clocks that they're going to set off at various points of the morning to be very irritating to him. But much to their chagrin, the next morning, there's no there's no sight of him. He doesn't look put out. When they go to investigate, they realise that he has been killed in his bed um, and that of the eight alarm clocks they'd placed in his room, seven are now nicely and neatly arranged on the mantelpiece, the first hint of seven dials. Now, there is a second hint. Uh, Bundle Brent, whose father owns the house, discovers a note he was writing the evening of his murder where he says he feels in very good health, but he's uncharacteristically sleepy and mentions something about Seven Dials. The next morning, Bundle Brent gets in her car and drives off to London to see one of their mutual friends and apparently runs over a young gentleman, but we realise that he's actually been shot and the last thing he mentions before he dies is also Seven Dials. So that sets up the mystery. So Bundle goes to London. She meets um, the police inspector that we got to know at Chimneys who specialises in international crime And he gives her a list of the secret services, sorry, the secret societies that the British secret police are currently following, not expecting anything to come of it. In fact, he has a very pragmatic approach is that we let these societies flourish. There's not not much harm to them and far better to spy on them and know what they're up to um, than close them down and then lose tabs of the people who are involved. The other key person in the novel is Bill Eversley, who you may remember from The Secret of Chimneys. And in that novel, he's seen as very much a sort of dumb jock type. He works in the foreign office. He's a man of action, but pretty thick (laughs) and um, the subject of mockery. And he comes into this novel again as a friend of Bundle. And once again, this is a novel where we're asked to question which of these dim-witted men and women are genuinely dumb and lazy and which are up to things behind the scenes, whether good or bad. And I'll leave it at that because I don't want to ruin the plot. But suffice to say, there are murders. There, are, There is the secret society in Seven Dials in Covent Garden, in which Bundle has to insinuate herself um, to spy on a secret meeting. And Agatha Christie does set it up as an international conspiracy. We have a glamorous French lady. We have a, a sort of Hungarian, I believe, countess. 
So we are meant to suspect this is 1929, a period of intense geopolitical paranoia, that something international and dangerous is afoot. So I will leave the plot there. My review is that despite what some of the critics say, um, this really is worth a read. It's so fun. It's so lighthearted. If you love P.G. Woodhouse and Oscar Wilde and some of those early Evelyn War novels, I think this really captures something of the spirit of the 1920s and the sort of the modern young woman, capital M, capital Y, capital W, I guess, <laughs> and what they're up to at that time. Um, there's some brilliant mockery of the Aristos and their thick entitled offspring. And Agatha Christie really is very sympathetic to the Nouveau Riche. She is herself Nouveau Riche. And the Coots, especially Lady Coot, I think is a really marvellously drawn character. Again, a woman that many um, underestimate as a bullied wife of a rich man who's rather boorish, but she has her own mischief too. I also really love Bundle Brent as a heroine. I think she's a strong, independent woman. And the way in which she banters with her, her father, I think, is absolutely brilliant. And it's characteristic of the novel that it ends with her and her father having a really brilliant comic exchange. So it's a light and fun book. That said, it got absolutely slated by the critics at the t- of the time. This is a typical review from the New York Times book review of the 7th of April, 1929. Quote, it continues to promise well until the time comes when the mystery is to be solved. Then it is seen that the author has been so keen on preventing the reader from guessing the solution that she has rather overstepped the bounds of what should be permitted to a writer of detective stories. She has held out information which the reader should have had, and not content with scattering false clues with a lavish hand, she has carefully avoided leaving any clues pointing to the real criminal. Worst of all, the solution is utterly preposterous. The book is far below the standard set by Agatha Christie's earlier stories. I disagree with all of that, and I'll tell you why after the end credits music, but only listen if you've actually read the book. Right, let's chat a bit about where this fits in the Agatha Christie oeuvre. She's been writing as a professional for sort of eight or nine years now. This is the time of her life, she's approaching 40 years old, that she calls her, quote, plutocratic period in her life, in that she was starting to receive sums of money from the American serializations, which were really generous and at the time free of income tax. And throughout Agatha Christie's life, she had a a checkered uh, relationship with Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs. Um, She's placed her daughter in boarding school. She's living a very independent life. And she starts taking really elaborate and wonderful trips of her own devising. And she was about to book a trip to the West Indies. In fact, I think she already had booked it. But she happened to meet a couple at a dinner party who'd just been um, all the way via Damascus to Baghdad, um, traveling partly on the Orient Express. So she completely changed her mind and decided to book a trip to the Middle East, which would be very fateful for her, if you know anything of her biography. Um, So this is a good period of her life, but this is still one of the books where I feel it's the last of those books she wrote after her very traumatic divorce, where she was still just trying to make money. And I think as we enter the 30s, you'll just see the quality of the writing really develop and flourish. In terms of what there is that has not aged well, um, sadly, there is still some of the casual of its time anti-Semitism that you see in Agatha Christie's books up until that 1932 meeting when she realises just the danger of this casual racism. Um, One of the characters says, you know, you can make up a 
a character for me and make me out to be as rich as you like. Quote, as long as you don't make me a Rothschild, as if there's something so bad about seeming to be Jewish. And we're told very pointedly that the actress Babe St. Mauer has actually changed her name from Abramiah or some other Jewish name. Um, when Bund- when Agatha Christie sorry, describes who's in the Seven Dials Club, she says, quote, there were portly foreigners, opulent Jewesses, a sprinkling of the really smart and several ladies belonging to the oldest profession in the world, end quote. Um, and again, this is part of that casual 1920s conflation of, of being Jewish with being sort of plutocratically wealthy and often American, actually, in Agatha Christie's writing, which is a bit distasteful. Finally, one of the characters who, in fairness, we find out is a bit of a bounder, does say, I won't be called that by a Russian Jew, as if it's not bad enough to be insulted, but it's really demeaning if you're insulted by someone who's Jewish, because obviously they're of a second class. So that's all really painful to read to the modern mind. The other thing that's kind of slightly weird that Agatha Christie does cling on to in the 1920s, as many of the crime writers, actually, of this period, is this belief that physiognomy um, tells us something about a character, but she's starting to invert it. So um, she does talk at length about the shape of the footman's head and the sl- and this is racist, the slightly flattened nose of the Slav. Um, but it is weird, isn't it, with Agatha Christie, because sometimes she herself is prejudiced, but then sometimes she subverts our expectations of others by making us fall for prejudice against them and then overturning it, if that makes sense. So sometimes the victims um, or the people that she makes out to be prejudiced about actually turn out to be really good people and she sort of led us on a dance. In terms of adaptations, to finish off, there aren't many because unlike that Agatha Christie Poirot and Miss Marple novels, the thrillers haven't really had many adaptations made. Um, There was apparently a movie made in 1980 by London Weekend Television, which is a um, British cable network, well not cable, it's a British TV network, It was a 140-minute television film made and broadcast in March 1981. Amazingly, it stars Sir John Gilgood, who I really would have loved to have watched it, but I could not find it anywhere on any of the streaming services or indeed on YouTube, because a lot of the older TV adaptations are on YouTube, except I did find a full-length adaptation of it, but with German dubbing. So if you fancy watching it in German, it is out there on YouTube for your delectation. Um, So that's all I want to say about The Seven Dials Mystery. I think it is so much better than contemporary people gave it credit for being. Um, It's really light. It's really fun. And as with a lot of these early thrillers and early Agatha Christie mysteries, I really wish someone would make a version of them on TV or for film that captures some of that Woodhousean comedy and some of the lightness of touch rather than doing a sort of postmodern, really dark, bleak version. Because I think it could be just endlessly funny. So thank you very much for listening. We'll be back next time with Agatha Christie's first Miss Marple novel, The Murder at the Vicarage. And in the meanwhile, whatever you're reading this weekend, I hope you're enjoying it. Okay, folks, this bit at the end assumes that you've read the novel or you are going to be spoiled. So I believe that Agatha Christie is not unfair to the reader in this book. I think she tells us many, many times from many people about many people that Jerry Wade cannot have been such an ass as he makes himself out to be. And she says the same. And Jimmy Thessica says the same of himself. 
And so it should not come as a surprise that Jerry Wade was actually working on behalf of the British government and was putting on a bit of a Scarlet Pimpernel Act, a story that would have been very familiar to her reader at the time. I think the other thing that probably chafed with contemporary reviewers was the big reveal that the secret society of the Seven Dials isn't actually a vast criminal conspiracy at all, but as a bunch of amateurs in society who can help the police, and indeed the police have instigated it and are parts of it in their investigations. So clearly Agatha Christie is taking that sort of 1920s paranoia that everyone's against us and all these foreigners are against us and showing us actually an example where you have a secret society where the police are basically using or allowing people to help them out, including um, the foreigners against who some might be prejudiced. I think it's actually laid up pretty well. The final reveal maybe is a bit surprising, but certainly the idea that Jimmy Thessica is the murderer, I think is very, very easy to see if you're reading closely, as I hope we all would be. All right, that's it for now. Bye. <laughs>